Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, we will be finishing that chapter tonight. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 15. So I'm going to read that section for us, but before I do, as always, brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the word of the living God, that he has given to us, preserved for us through the ages, and now we hear proclaimed to us this evening. May his spirit make it beneficial to us. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Beloved of God, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So let's ask the Lord now to cause our hearts to both believe and rejoice in his word this evening. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you, along with the Son and the Spirit, are truth and wisdom itself. And so we recognize together that any truth we know is from you. And any wisdom we possess has been given by you. We confess together the folly of our sin. And we ask that you might forgive us our sins for Jesus' sake. By your word and spirit, instruct us and teach us now in the way we should go. In love, counsel us with your eye upon us and grant that we would not be like a stubborn mule without understanding who is only moved to obedience by the pain that's inflicted upon him. Rather, cause us to joyfully obey you, knowing that your steadfast love surrounds us as we trust in you. May we be glad in you, and rejoice in our fellowship with you all our days. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, I want to begin our time this evening looking at God's word by asking you a question. And the question is, how often, how regularly do you spend time reflecting and meditating rolling over again and again in your mind, eyeing the righteousness and the justice of God. 
Is that a, a regular habit of your life? To rejoice in who God is, that he is justice itself, that he is righteousness itself. And furthermore, do you not only meditate on those truths of God's character, but then do you praise him for who he is in his justice and righteousness? Do you rejoice in those realities that are true of God himself? Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, we ought to. We ought to praise him for who he is, and we ought to take great comfort if such a God is for us, then who can be against us? And so we're going to be encouraged by God's grace and by the Spirit as we look at this text to do just that, to meditate and reflect on the righteousness and the justice of God. And the way that this text helps us do that is by showing us God's judgment in his Son of all mankind at the end of all things. And we're going to focus on on three realities that are in this text this evening. Three realities that the text focuses our attention on. First of all, we're going to look at the judge. The judge in verse 11 who sits on the throne and who judges all mankind. Second of all, we're going to focus on the judged in the first half of verse 12 and verse 13. And what we're going to see is that the judged before the throne, includes all mankind. No one is excluded. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the judgment itself that issues forth from the throne. And we'll look at that in the second half of verse 12 and verses 14 and 15. And as we look at these realities and meditate on them and rejoice in them, I I hope and pray, brothers and sisters, that we're moved all the more to entrust ourselves to our God who judges justly. So let's look first then at the judge in verse 11. Let me read that for us. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So the first thing that we notice that's really thrust into our face in this vision is the reality of this white throne. And if you've been tracking with us through the book of Revelation, our minds should drift back to the first place really in the book where there's a mentioning of thrones over and over and over again. Our minds should drift back to chapters 4 and 5. We remember John in his vision is taken up into the heavenly temple itself. And he beholds the Lord ruling and reigning over all things, all the judgments that are about to come on the earth from the time of Christ's first coming until his second coming. We're reminded that God's sovereign over all of that. And now here in chapter 20, we're shown that God is sovereign over the judgment of of all mankind. But here's the thing, this throne language takes us even further back than Revelation 4 and 5 to Daniel chapter 7. Perhaps you're familiar with that passage. You remember that Daniel beholds a vision of the heavenly temple as well. And he sees the Lord, the Ancient of Days, 
seated on the throne, and books are opened. Books are opened. He is sitting on his throne in judgment over the nations. And then who approaches the throne? One like a son of man. And he's given an everlasting kingdom. And it's given to him to actually execute this judgment. Now, here's the question that we have to ask. We're told here by John that there is someone who is seated on the throne. And so the question is, who is that one who is seated on the great white throne? And I'm going to briefly argue for you that I think that the New Testament is abundantly clear. Jesus himself is clear that he is the one who is seated here in judgment. God is judging all mankind through his son. And so that's why Jesus says in Matthew 25 verses 31 and 32... When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is saying, I am that Danielic Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And I will sit on my glorious throne. Before him, he goes on to say, will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so now we see the fulfillment of this. That when Jesus comes back, he will sit on his throne. All the nations will be brought before him. And he will separate the sheep from the goats. Paul says the exact same thing, by the way, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Paul is preaching to the Athenians. He's preaching Christ to them. And listen to what he says. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Well, who's the God-man who's been raised from the dead? The Lord Jesus Christ. So who is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the world in righteousness? It's the same Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what do we see? The testimony of the New Testament is who is sitting in judgment of all mankind? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that what John says in John 5.22 comes to fulfillment. That the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Now one more question from verse 11, what's the significance of Jesus sitting on a white throne? What's the significance of it being the color white? Now, there's a lot we could say about this, but let's just mention two important realities here. First of all, we see throughout Scripture that the the color white represents or symbolizes purity. And so by this throne being white, we're being told that Jesus is perfectly pure in his righteousness And his justice, because he is righteousness and justice itself as God. And so all of his judgments 
are going to be righteous and just. And no one will be able to stand before him and say, that, that's not fair, Jesus. Your judgment is wrong. That's untrue. No one will be able to object to his judgments because they are all pure and just. Second of all, we also know throughout Scripture that white symbolizes holiness. And so by sitting on this white throne, we're reminded that Jesus is holy. And so Psalm 47 verse 8 is true of him. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And so when Jesus is judging all mankind, you see his holiness will be on display for all to see, both in the judgment of his enemies and in the salvation of those to whom the Father has given him. So we've we've looked at who's seated on the throne. Now notice at the tail end of verse 11 how nature in its fallen state responds to the coming of Christ on his throne, to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in judgment. Look at the second half of verse 11 there. From his presence, from Jesus' presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So, so great is the appearing of Christ in his glory, in judgment, that, that heaven and earth flee from him. And we've already seen this earlier in the book of Revelation, haven't we? We've already seen this represented to us symbolically in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, and chapter 16, verse 20. And so it's as if everything that the earth dwellers, you remember throughout the book of Revelation, unbelievers are called earth dwellers. This is their home. They think their life consists in what they can see and taste and touch and smell. And so they're very much at home here. And yet with the return of Christ, all of those distractions, all of those things are pulled away. And who is brought to the forefront? The Lord Jesus Christ, sitting on his throne in judgment. And so what can we learn from this? The most important thing we can learn is behold the glory and the terror and the awe of the judge of all mankind, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever here this morning, hear me loud and clear on this, there is no escaping him. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 is true. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, don't misunderstand me. You may be able to distract yourself to a degree in this life with the pleasures and comforts that this world offers you. But when Jesus comes back, all of those will be stripped away. And you will stand before him naked and exposed with no place to hide. And so you need to know that and hear that and be warned that this day, that Christ is coming for you. And for believers, what greater comfort can we know than the reality that the judge of all mankind is none other than our Savior? 
exactly what John Calvin says when he reflects on this reality. What greater comfort than to know that the one who shed his blood and died and lived, did everything he did for us and our reconciliation to God, that he is the judge appointed by the Father. That should give us comfort. And so we ought to rejoice in the reality that the Father has appointed our righteous and just Savior to be the judge at the end of all things. And we'll look at that reality a bit more a little bit later on in the text. But now that we've looked at the first focus, the focus of the judge, now secondly, let's look at the the focus on the judged. Secondly, the judged. And we're going to see that in verses 12 and 13. So let me read those verses for us. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So the question is, who are the judged? I think the text is really, really clear. The judged is everyone. All human beings who have ever existed before Christ's second coming and all of those who are in existence upon Christ's second coming. No one's excluded. It's the great and the small Those who died in the sea, those who are under the sway of death and Hades, no one is excluded. Everybody is included in this. And so what this is talking about is when Jesus comes back and those whose bodies have been buried after their death, believers and unbelievers, when Jesus comes back, their bodies will be resurrected. And their souls will be reunited with their bodies. And then they will stand before Christ. And they will give an account for all of the deeds and misdeeds that they have done in the body. And again, who's excluded? No one. This is every human being who has ever existed. Even believers? Yes. Even believers. So let me address both groups then. First of all, unbelievers, repent. This day is coming. Again, you may be able to distract yourself a bit. But you've got to understand and face the reality that at the end of all things, you will stand before the throne of God Almighty. And you will give an account. And here's the thing. You will have no defense. You may think you do now. Well, you know, I'm not that bad. I've done more good things. For every one bad thing I've done, I've done like five good things. I think I can, I can, I'll be okay. I can stand on that day. No, 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 no. You will not be able to pass the test of God's requirement for perfection. If you've even committed the smallest sin, 
You will have to give an account for that. You will be able to make no defense. You will be able to make no appeal. Because who are you going to appeal to? This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is justice itself. There's no outside standard that you can appeal to. And so you will stand before him and you will be found guilty. And you will pay the fullness of the penalty for your sins against a holy, infinite, righteous God for all eternity. I don't revel in telling you this, but I love you enough to tell you this. So repent. You have no time to waste. You don't know when he'll call you before the throne. You don't know when he will return. And for believers, this is how I want to apply this to us. Do not believe the lie as the flesh and the world and the devil tempt us to believe that you can hide your sins. Don't believe that lie because you can't. You understand when when Jesus comes back, these books are going to be open and everything is going to be exposed. Now, that's not the ultimate reason why we ought not to try to hide our sins and lie. We ought to, to do that to the praise and the glory of God's grace and wanting to live in the light with our fellow brothers and sisters as he is in the light. But sometimes we think, you know, no one's going to know. It's not that big of a deal. And what, what they don't know isn't going to hurt them. Fight off the temptation to believe that lie by reminding yourself, no, 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 no. Everything will be exposed. It's exactly what Jesus says, by the way, in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in dark rooms shall be proclaimed on housetops. You can't get away with anything. So repent of your sin, bring it to the light, and hate it. And look to Christ for forgiveness. So we focused on the judge and the judged, and finally... Let's look at the judgment itself, and we'll begin by looking at the second half of verse 12. I'm going to read all of verse 12, but we'll focus on the second half of it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to to what they had done. So we have two books. We have the books that were opened, and then we have another book. So let's look at these in turn. First of all, the books that were opened is a a direct reference, again, back to Daniel chapter 7. These books that are opened by the Ancient of Days as he is sitting on his throne in judgment. And so what do these these books contain? I mean, are there actually going to be at the, the judgment of all mankind, physical books opened? No, that's not what we're to understand these, these representing or symbolizing. They're representing or symbolizing to us God's complete and comprehensive knowledge of everything that we've ever desired, everything that we've ever thought, everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever said. 
Again, completely exposed. Perfectly known. Nothing hidden. And so these books that are opened represent the judgment of God in light of His perfect knowledge of all of His image bearers. And the time has come for them to all give an account for their deeds in the body. Now, what about the other book? This other book that was opened, the book of life. Well, I want you to notice something really quickly. I want you to notice that this book does not have deeds written in it. Instead, what does it have written in it? Look at verse 15 with me. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This book of life is a list of names. And so what is this a reference to? This is a reference back to Daniel as well. But Daniel chapter 12, where it's prophesied that there's going to be this great tribulation that the people of God are going to experience. And those whose names are written in the book of life will endure. And so what is, what is this representing to us then? Again, this isn't a physical book. What this is representing to us is, is the fact that God in his grace... And in his mercy, before we had done anything, chose us as a pure act of his gracious will to write our names in the book of life that we might be saved to the praise of his glorious grace. Not because he foreknew that we would choose him, not because of any good that we have done, purely out of his grace. He's written our names in in this book of life. And this is not the first time that this book is mentioned in the book of Revelation, by the way. If we go back to Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, we learn there that our names have been written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. And so we have always been objects of God's love. And in love, he wrote our names in this book. We also learn something else about this book in Revelation 13, 8. Who does this book belong to? It belongs to the lamb who was slain. And so our names, we're to understand, are written in that book. Because God has chosen us before the foundations of the world to be identified with the lamb who was slain. And so why are we saved? Why are we spared? Why are we not destroyed at the end of all things before the throne of God's judgment? Because of our association with the Lamb who took that judgment upon himself on the cross. His blood shed for our sins so there's no judgment left for us. And he fulfilled all righteousness, and that righteousness is counted as ours. So we can stand before the Lord and pass the scrutiny, if you will, of his judgment. And you know what's incredible about this, brothers and sisters, is we don't have to wait until that day to hear that judgment. That judgment is already proclaimed over us in God's word and with his spirit, testifying with our spirit that we are his. And so the declaration has already gone out. Not guilty, 
but forgiven because of the lamb who was slain. Because I chose you before the foundation of the world. Because you deserve to be condemned in and of yourself, just like I do, if it was based on our own works. But you see, those whose names are written in the book of life will not be judged on their works, but on the works of Christ, done in our place. Even though we deserve to be judged and condemned with those whose names are not written in the book of life. And so we see this judgment then continue to unfold in verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what do we see happening here? Well, first of all, notice in verse 14 that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And so what do we see here? We see what Paul says will happen in 1 Corinthians 15, 26 happening, which is what? He says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The other enemies are already there, right? The beast, the false prophet, Satan, the dragon himself. And so now symbolically what's represented to us here is the last enemy to be thrown in is death and Hades. And, and what are they thrown into? The lake of fire, which is the second death. What's the first death? First death is very unnatural to us. We were created body and soul. And what happens in the first death is our bodies and souls are separated from each other, aren't they? For a time, until Christ comes back and they're rejoined. And then we're judged. But what is the second death? The second death is when Christ comes back, bodies and souls of all people brought back together, and then unbelievers, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. Is there actually a lake of fire? No. This is representing to us God's judgment, his wrath, poured out on his enemies for all eternity. Eternal conscious suffering. Not that you cease to exist. It's that you suffer for your sins forever under the wrath of God. And this is what awaits all of God's enemies. And then what verse 15 is showing us is what? That this is what we all as fallen human beings deserve. Because of the guilt that's imputed to us in Adam. And because of our own sinful Rebellion against God is what we all deserve. It would be perfectly just for God to throw all fallen humanity into hell. And yet, what has he done instead? All of his just requirements have been met for us in his son. And so we're spared. Jesus experienced, as it were, the second death on the cross in our place. And so we go free and we're reconciled to God and have fellowship and communion with him. And so again, one more time, unbelievers, turn to Christ. I plead with you, turn to him. This day is coming. 
But you see, you have a way of escape. Because he is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. But he is your only hope. You will one day face him and answer for your deeds done in the body and then you will be cast into the lake of fire. You will suffer under his wrath. You will pay for your misdeeds because God is not mocked. What you reap, you sow. And the wages of sin is death. So hide yourself in Christ. Flee to him. He's the only way of escape. And you were created for fellowship with him. And the only way of peace is not by you saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it different now. You can't repay an infinite debt. You are finite. But Jesus can and Jesus did. And he is the only way that you can have peace with God Almighty. And for us believers this evening, rejoice. As you meditate on these realities, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. I mean, it's otherworldly is what John says. What love can you compare this to? There's no way this is man-made. An invention of man's imaginations. I mean, maybe the greatest love you've ever experienced from another human being is, is a faint echo of this kind of love. But in another sense, it's incomparable because it's a love that had no beginning and it's a love that will never have any ending. And so rejoice in him, in Christ, our just and righteous God and King, because he is the judge. And though we deserve to be judged and cast into the fires of hell, His judgment, which is already issued forth from the throne of God, is that we are forgiven and counted righteous for Christ's sake and brought into the family of God, adopted as sons. And so we ought to rejoice in this reality together. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the reminder And may we rejoice in it all our days that you are just and righteous. May we find great comfort in that, in an unjust and unrighteous world. Sometimes we despair that justice and righteousness will be upheld. But what a wonderful reminder that it will be. And so may you, by your grace, use your word to cause us to entrust ourselves to you, the one who judges justly. And endure whatever we must endure to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen.